Welcome to Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. I'm Richard Dugan, your host, and I thank you so much for joining us on the program today. We are here on Sundays on this fine radio station at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m. Monday mornings at 1 a.m. streaming live at those times. And that is at richarddugan.com. And uh, we are also podcasting these programs at SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, Stitcher, Player FM, Blueberry, and a whole bunch of other locations that uh, I don't have enough uh, air left to uh, announce. But I thank you for reposting our interviews to uh, other websites and uh, podcast outlets. And we are also on YouTube. So if you wanted to watch the interview, you can do that. Go to YouTube and uh, type in my name, Richard Dugan, and tell me your story. Look for the guy with the hat. You can't miss me. I guarantee you. Uh, And the uh, salt and pepper, as they say, salt and pepper uh, face covering. Uh, There's another name for it, but I can't remember what it is right now. Uh, We also hope that you will uh, support us financially by uh, going to PayPal and Patreon links that we have on our homepage and our missions page. And if this is the first time you've listened to this program, you can go to the missions page and you can read a little bit about who and what we're all about. Also, going to give you our guest website here in just a little bit so that you can continue your evolutionary process. And we also want you to participate in the 2020s, the decade of perfect vision, where we are encouraging you to go within, spend time in a quiet, calm, peaceful place, which is within yourself. Listen to that still small voice. Get the guidance the inspiration, the insight, the encouragement, and the peace that we are all looking for. And it honestly doesn't matter what's going on in the outside world. We all need it, no matter what's happening outside of us. So spend that time, if you would. We've got nine more years of the decade of perfect vision, uh, but we hope that we will uh, encourage you to continue on uh, beyond that as well. Our program today, I think you're going to enjoy because it's going to be coming from a perspective we haven't really heard about before, Uh, at least from the standpoint of the um, uh, information that has been given to us over the millennia, if you will, in regards to storytelling. I mean, that's what this program is all about, telling stories. Uh, Tell me your story, and I'll tell you mine, okay? You show me yours, and I'll show you mine. Uh, Manuscript, that is. Uh, But today, we're going to kind of ask that same question of our guest, Elizabeth Lesser, and she is the author of Cassandra Speaks, and it has to do with when women are the storytellers, the human story changes. Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm sorry, say that one more time. Thank you for having me. Let me ask you, um, as we get started here, obviously this is a novel, but it's from a a female perspective. And obviously here we are uh, in the 2020s, and um, we're obviously inundated with all kinds of information in regards to, oh, uh, what was referred to back in the 70s as the Battle of the Sexes. Um, you know, I remember what was, what was the guy's name now? I can't remember. Um, uh, but he fought, he was a tennis player and yeah. Uh, yeah. With uh, Billie Jean King. With Billie, Billie Jean King, King. And I can't yeah. remember his name, but just, just yeah, I can't either. I've blocked it. And you know, <laughs> <laughs> it'll come to me in the middle of the conversation. I'll it, go like, blah, blah. exactly. <laughs> it'll pop out there. But what's interesting is that. When we talk about history, and this, and again, we're talking about stories, histories, not his stories, history in terms of the narrative uh, that makes up our past. And uh, when you talk about battles, when you talk about conflicts, it is usually the victor that writes those stories. And in that, the victor is usually male. And so we haven't really heard too much about our history from the female perspective, although I have to I do have to say, Elizabeth, uh, I I started my broadcast career um, in a state at one of these stations, uh, which was a Christian station. And, of course, the predominant 
acts of ministers and pastors and programmers were men. And, of course, uh, I, in the Bible, it talks about uh, how, you know, Peter was late, named the, the first pope, quote unquote. And I paraphrase that. But I have studied the Bible enough to know that he should never have been made the head of the church, the rock, as it were. It should have been Mary Magdalene. Not only was she the first person to see the resurrected Jesus, she was also the first person to know who he was. Whereas when the guys came along, they were just kind of tooling along, looking for their friend who had been crucified. And um, when he approached them, they didn't know who he was. They did, you know, they were basically, we're heading for the bar to drown our sorrows. You know, have you seen so-and-so? It's like, are you kidding me? And it's like the women in, in religious history, let alone history at large, have not been given the credit and the honor and the position that they have, they so richly deserve. And correct me if I'm wrong, and this was where we'll start this. Not above men, but beside them. Talk to us about that. Well, listening to you reminded me of uh, a statement from one of my favorite historians, Sally Roche Wagner, who says, history is not what happened. It's who tells the story. So there's nothing wrong in my humble opinion, with the stories men have told over the ages. Mm -hmm. um, but just imagine if women, only women, had been the storytellers. Just, just try to wrap your head around that idea. Let's say women had been, as you say, the victors or the ones who were elevated to major storyteller, mm -hmm. and men mm -hmm. hadn't told the stories. Well, we'd have very different origin tales. We'd have different, the greatest literature. We'd have different films and theaters as like what describes what it means to be a hero, what it means to be human. Because women and men have had over millennia different interests, different priorities, different values, different things they were responsible for. And we tell stories out of our own experience and needs. So if only women had been the storytellers, we would have left the genius of men out of history. But they weren't. Only men were. So we left the genius of women out of history. When What I think we want now, because we can change it now, mm -hmm. we want a balanced story. What does it mean to be human, to be fully human? for man to be fully human, for a woman to be fully human, how can we retell the stories that define us so that we're not in these boxes? Men, I feel, suffer as much as women from this very narrow definition of, of what it means to be a full, heroic, fantastic human being. And, you know, that's an, a, a, a very interesting perspective to take. When we hear, and I remember growing up in the late 60s and 70s, uh, hearing all of the the uh, hoopla over the ERA amendment that was trying to be passed uh, throughout the country. And the thing that has always perplexed me about that, as well as the movement for civil rights, as well as the movement for voter rights, is I can't believe that we actually have to fight to establish laws to give people the right to be who they are, to participate in the process, and, and it just it just boggles my mind. It's like yeah, I know it is a mind-boggling thing, and <laughs> it, it just boggles the mind. And I've sort of I spent so many years trying to unboggle my mind around it. <laughs> That it sort of became a diversionary waste of time as opposed to just saying, oh, crap, human beings are really weird in that way. <laughs> Here's what I see instead. Yeah. Who'd like to come along? Yeah. You know, 
because it does seem to be that there is um, this tendency within humans, although I'll tell you an interesting thing about that, this sort of fight or flight, you know, like when you're in, when you're threatened, you either fight or you flee. Mm-hmm. That, that's always been the scientific story we've told and believed. But that story came into consciousness in the 1930s and 40s when a social scientist went into a lab and decided to measure the hormones and the chemicals in his uh, participants, hundreds and hundreds of them, what happens, and he would create these laboratory experiments of stress, and then he would measure their um, blood levels. And he discovered this fight or flight. But the thing was, he only brought men into the lab. Mm. Only men were tested. So in, nine, in 20, 2006, a woman at UCLA, uh, Shelley Taylor, brought women into the lab. She wondered, I wonder if I recreated those same experiments with women and I measured their blood levels and chemistry and hormones, what would that show? And she came up with the um, term tend and befriend. She noticed that when women were put under these experiments where they were put under stress and duress and trauma, their response was not to fight or to flee, to disconnect, to run away or fight. It was more to tend. Under stress, her subjects wanted to tend to the least powerful, the most vulnerable in the groups. Mm. That, that was their physical response. Or befriend, create these circles of belonging so that fighting wasn't the necessary. So I look at the old stories told from the fight or flight point of view. All of our hero tales, the ones we love, the whether it's even... Even Wonder Woman, even when they bring women into that sort of hero's journey tale, it's like, how do we fight to get what we want? Mm -hmm. And I am so tired of those stories. Sometimes they're necessary, but there's a whole other genre of stories, which I'd like to see elevated and given like some musculature, like, let's make it cool to be caretakers. Mm -hmm. Let's make it hot to be loving, you know, let's, let's make it kind of cool and sexy to be someone who tends and befriends as opposed to always this kick-ass fighting, uh, macho way of looking at what makes a hero's story. Well, we're, we'll talk about that as well, but you brought something up. I, I wanted to have you address and that is this, there is this term floating around, that I'm trying to understand, uh, and I, I don't have a problem with it because I'm not sure that I understand it. You can't have a problem <laughs> with something you don't understand. <laughs> Toxic masculinity. Can you help us, help me and our listeners to understand, first of all, what that means? But mm-hmm. also, um, is that something that's, is that real? What is it, and is it real? Well, you're asking the right girl. That's a good <laughs> for me. Um, first of all, I've been married twice to men, not simultaneously, you know. Hey, no judgment uh, here if you were. Okay. No, I'm, I would judge that. But, <laughs> okay. Um, anyway, I have three sons, mm-hmm. and now I have grandsons. So I love men, and I love the masculine inside of me. And I hope you can relate to some form of quote unquote feminine within you. Mm-hmm. If we're going to just so, there's both toxic masculinity and toxic femininity because everything has its shadow side. Mm-hmm. The, the beauty of men, the sort of go out and get it, the explorer, the protector. Everything that we identify, and I'm speaking in broad terms, you know, masculinity and femininity. Some people don't like those terms at all, but I'm using the sort of mythological idea of man 
the explorer, woman, the caretaker. I know some people have trouble with that distinction. So just hold it very lightly. Mm -hmm. But um, I would say toxic masculinity is just an excess of a uh, controlling, dominating spirit that sometimes is appropriate, but often isn't. But because the masculine way has been the supreme way there, you know, just like there's been white supremacy, there's been male supremacy. That's not a harsh judgment on men. That's the truth. It's just, Males, it is what it is. Uh, it is what it is. Yeah. Males have dominated culture. And when anything dominates culture, there tends to be an excess of it. And because there has not been a balance in men and in culture, there's a toxicity to it. And to, for a man to like own that in himself, I would consider would be a liberating thing for a man to do, to take himself out of what some people call the man box. Mm. You know, little boys when they're five, six are suddenly told, don't cry, mm -hmm. don't need your mommy too much, don't be a sissy. Whereas girls are told tomboys are cool. You know, it's it's that's a good thing to be. But boys, any sign of the feminine in a little boy is shamed. You're you're not supposed to be. Can you imagine if it was a sign of pride for a boy to say, yeah, I'm a sissy. I mean, a girl says I'm a tomboy. So what does this say about what men actually think about women and think about the feminine within themselves? I think it says it's something they're ashamed of. It means they're not a strong man. They're always trying to prove their masculinity. And that can stray into a toxic way of being. Does that help you understand? Or do you have, uh, do you want to, you want to fight about it? <laughs> <laughs> no. Matter of fact, uh, I'm not a real fan of a lot of the, uh, uh, the drama programs and movies uh, and I use this example quite often when we get into a conversation like this <clears throat> there's a, a and, and I really was curious I wanted to see this film because uh, I like I like the superhero films they you know because the action and and all of that kind of stuff and these are these are um, well I, I will say that these are our modern day mythology these are some of our modern day mythology stories of the 20th and 21st centuries uh, and um there's one movie that came out called uh, Batman versus Superman. Did you ever see that? No, I'm I I don't I have no problem with people liking superhero stories, but they do nothing for me. I understand. They're not my modern day <clears throat> mythology. Well, for those who are listening, uh there's going to be a spoiler alert here, okay? I'm going to reveal uh, the end of the film this time. So if you don't want to know what it is, turn your uh, sound down for about two minutes, if if that. I'm, I'll try to keep it brief. The film basically uh, starts out where there's this conflict between Batman and Superman. And I'm, I'm only remembering this vaguely from the end of the story. Uh, supposedly some misinformation came out uh, between Batman and Superman about... I think it was Batman's mother, something along those lines. Uh, maybe Superman had something to do with Batman's mother's death, allegedly. So the next hour and a half, roughly, of the film, they spend fighting each other uh, across, over hill and dale, through cities and farms and this and that and the other thing and around the world until the last 15 minutes of the show and they finally stop. I guess exhausted, at least over maybe the fight, the fighting, and they start talking and they start talking about why they were fighting. And the truth finally comes out because it was the first time that Superman was able to explain to Batman whatever actually happened. And they realized, oh, OK, never mind. <laughs> and I sat there going, you know, if they had just talked at the beginning of the film, yeah, it would have only been five minutes long, would have been only five minutes long. 
But, you know, and, and then there was another program. It was a television series called The Last Ship having to do with this virus, kind of like what we're dealing with now, that went globally. And this particular naval vessel had the vaccine. They had come up with a vaccine for it. And they come to this island and they notice there are other people there, other, uh, you know, uh, what have you. And as soon as they land on the island, they're being shot at by these people on the island. And so they basically, with all of the armament they have, they basically wipe everybody else out except for the leader, who they capture, take on board, and they start going through the dialogue of trying to figure out what the hell is going on here. And he is accusing them, specifically them, of contaminating the vaccine uh, that didn't do the thing that they said they, that it was supposed to do. And, he's, and then, of course, the captain of the ship's going, that wasn't us specifically, was not us. It was somebody else. So, again, here they're dialoguing. And eventually, the guy they capture becomes an ally and an asset. And if only the two had talked prior, none of the other people would have been killed. But, of course, it would not have made for a very interesting program. And all of this stuff is so predictable that, unfortunately, we have the same scenario in, if you want to call it real life, where that seems to be the answer every time we turn around. We built a wall. Non-political statement here, but we built a wall. When has a wall ever solved a problem? Never. Look at the Berlin Wall, for starters. And the reason why the, uh, the Great Wall of China was built in sections over thou uh, several thousand years. The people still got through. They found a way, etc., etc. And, and we seem to have these old world solutions, as you say, fight and flight. So that's what really bothers me about a lot of what we're being fed today, both from the... Uh, from the um, entertainment industry, but also uh, from the news media. I'm not blaming the news media. They're only giving us what they're given by our in institutions. Um, do you see no, that? You know what? You d I didn't have to write my book. So you, <laughs> just told, you just told the exact thesis of my book that we, these are actually not the mythology of our 2020 perfect site. Mm -hmm. These are old, worn-out stories. Old, worn-out. not the stories that will bring us into the new paradigm. They are old paradigm stories. And I do believe that women have, having been out of power for, out of the power paradigm for millennia, if we follow our deeper, more spiritual core, mm -hmm. can be very helpful in telling new stories from our tend and befriend vantage point. It doesn't mean men can't tell the stories, too, mm -hmm. or that we're not in it together. But the whole point of my book was to empower women not just to get into power so as to keep doing it the same way, right. but to listen deeply within for a new story that elevates what you just said, talking about it instead of making assumptions mm -hmm. and then fighting. If we could pause the assumption making and be courageous enough to say, hey, dude, what what is really going on here? Can we uh, can we interrupt what has been the way humans have treated each other for so long by just talking to each other. Yeah. I think there's a whole portion of my book about talking and the courage to talk things out. I, I tell a story of, of after 9-11, I was asked because I'm a meditation teacher to work with some of the first responders post 9-11 mm -hmm. who were having um, PTSD and unable to really recover from the trauma. And a lot of people were being asked to do this and, and it was self-selected. These were firemen and policemen who chose to come into these classes in mindfulness as a way of, of healing from the trauma. And 
it became a joke between us because I loved these guys and they were very willing to learn mindfulness. But when I would ask them to share what they were feeling and to talk about what had happened to them and to kind of unpack why they felt so hostile and angry, they wouldn't talk about it. There was this sense of like a real man wouldn't need to talk about it. And no matter what angle I would come at them with, you know, like, like you'll have a heart attack if you don't, you know, here's the science behind (laughs) men bottling up their emotions and not sharing your marriage will fall apart, you know? And I, I tried every which way. And a few of them, I, I felt I broke through. Um, I, I said, you know, you don't have to be the strong and silent type. You can be the strong and open type. And that was more scary to them than going into a building on fire. It was so terrifying for them to share their vulnerable hearts, to admit to fear, to admit to failure. I, I, I write about that a lot in the book because I feel it's exactly what you were talking about with your problem with Batman versus Superman. Um, could we talk about shit before it turns into something? <laughs> exactly right. Exactly right. You are also the co-founder of Omega Institute, which is a renowned conference and retreat center located in Rhinebeck, uh, New York. Talk to us a little bit about that institute. We'll get back to Catherine Speaks here in just a moment. But um, uh, what, what about that? Because I was part of an organization years ago, back in the 90s. It was called Omega Vector. And then, of course, they changed to Delta Vector. Uh, it was a personal growth and improvement program, which which was very fascinating. But What's, what is this Omega Institute? I'm, I'm fascinated by just the name itself. Uh, it's a 42-year-old organization. I was just in my young 20s when I was the co-founder. It was at a time in American history, you know, when all the Eastern gurus were washing up on the shores of America and, <laughs> and bringing Eastern spirituality. And it also was when holistic health was really just very new and the idea of how your diet could change your health and how you thought. These were all new kind of far out ideas, yoga, meditation. Nobody had really heard about this, but we were just a bunch of young kids who were interested in it. We took the name Omega from the writings of Teilhard de Chardin, who Mm -hmm. was a Christian mystic. And and Teilhard spoke about the Omega point which was uh, this point in the universe toward which everything was evolving. Everything was evolving toward unity. And that's why we took the word Omega from his writings. And um, we have had, you know, every great thinker and spiritual teacher and medical professional and sports figures and, Nobel Peace Prize winners, anybody that that uh, fits into our uh, tagline, which is awakening the best in the human spirit. And we offer workshops and retreats and conferences. Uh, we have about 30,000 people come through every year. This year, we had to shut down. We're still shut down. We're hanging on by our fingernails financially because educational retreat centers never rake in the dough anyway so uh but it's been a very very difficult time for us as well as so many other Mm -hmm. organizations and restaurants and concert halls and anything where people gather yeah well you know uh, matter of fact the omega vector program was also based on Teilhard's uh, work and zero point but not Uh just his but many others that were in congruence in in uh, in congruency with his thoughts and ideas of our evolutionary process our raising our consciousness to a higher level and to to quote another uh, individual who I have quoted many times on this program um, a physicist by the name of uh, Einstein, who basically said that you cannot solve 
a problem with the same consciousness that created it. Mm-hmm. And so unless we raise our consciousness to a new level, to where we start thinking differently, which is really what this program is all about, a new paradigms for a new world, giving people choices and knowledge of those choices to help make their dreams come true, looking for those new ways of living, which I am finding the further along in this program that I go, uh, as, as we are now into our 14th year of this program, I've been interviewing for over 40 years, I'm finding that they aren't new. They're actually old ways of living. And I mean old in the sense of ancient. Uh, Many of the ancient wisdom teachings talk about ways in which we can live together peacefully. Uh, We can cohabitate uh, together. We can communicate uh, and so on and so forth without destroying ourselves or other people. And I mean, I've even raised the question, Elizabeth, Uh, who um, uh, is joining us here on the program today. I've even raised the question, um, does man really deserve to continue? Look at the way he's behaving uh, amongst himself, but the way he's destroying the very home in which he lives, that he was given so graciously uh, to inhabit for whatever number of years that he might. Look at what he's done. Does he really deserve? Has he earned the right to continue? And I'm not talking about Annihilation here. Don't don't get me wrong. It just seems like, and again, maybe that's going back to the old paradigm of punishment. But the, the, the it just seems like there has to come a break point, and maybe uh, we're going to go through our sixth extinction event. Some people say we're eight to ten, uh, twelve years away from the tip. It literally going beyond the point of no return. Eight to twelve years. That if we don't make significant changes in the next eight to 12 years, you can kiss it goodbye because we're not going to survive. We will not be able to sustain life on this planet because we haven't taken care of it. And that's really unfortunate that we've, you know, we just, you know, according to some historians, we've done this five times and we're headed for number six. And it's like we never seem to get the message that this is not uh, the way it's supposed to be. I mean, there. I am sure there are sufficient planets in the universe, class M planets, if you will, that will sustain 8 billion of us as individuals, sole, sole occupants of each of those planets. But guess what? That's not where we are. We're all here. And what that tells me is we're supposed to work together. <laughs> right? Right. So how did you get introduced to his his work? I mean, you said in your 20s, which is when this this institute was founded uh, and its main purpose is to help to raise consciousness. I mean, okay. how do you how do you do that at this institute? What what is the process that you use to help those who say, yes, I want to raise my consciousness so I can make a difference in this world and make this place as the phrase goes, a sustainable place? Well, um, I often look at at our humanness as something, the journey we go on. We go through, I divide it into four landscapes. We have the landscape of the body, the landscape of the heart, the landscape of the mind, and the landscape of the soul. And each one of us at different times in our life needs work in one of those landscapes more than others. Some people are so wounded and unwell and bogged down and veiled in the body, you know, like if your body isn't clean and energetic and well, it's kind of hard to tune into higher vibrations, frequencies of consciousness. So for some people working on the body, changing the diet, exercising, healing trauma, sexual trauma, uh, all kinds of trances of unworthiness in your body. That's spiritual work, and that can help you raise your consciousness. Some people are so emotionally stunted, closed down, wounded, psychological work, you know, therapy work, so you can kind of like what voice is in me? Is it my mother's voice, the culture's voice, my father? So the kind of therapeutic 
workshops are really excellent on the journey towards the soul work. And some people are just what I call mental cases. Mm. And we all are like this, just like so in your head, thinking, 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 I can think my way through this intellectual and shut off in the body and shut off in the emotions. And all of that to me is preparation work for soul work, which is more meditative. Like you started the beginning saying the purpose of your show is to um, help people tune into this other kind of consciousness Mm -hmm. that's yearning for us to identify with it and help it be born culturally. So a lot of spiritual work to me is just cleaning away the the smudge on the lantern so that light of the soul can Mm. come through. So Mm. that's um, why it's a long answer to the workshops we offer. Holistic. Maybe it's a sports one. Maybe it's a creativity workshop that frees up parts of yourself that are blocked. So we offer all kinds of workshops from all of those landscapes of body, mind, heart, soul. Cassandra Speaks is the title of the book, When Women Are the Storytellers, The Human Story Changes. Elizabeth Lesser is my guest. And the website that you want to go to, I'll tell you right now, it's Elizabeth Lesser, L-E-S-S-E-R dot Org, ElizabethLesser.org. We will be linked to her website as well so that you can find out more about um, what she is doing, the work that she is doing. Let me ask you, Elizabeth, if you would, please. Um, where are you philosophically slash spiritually? And where did you start? Where did you come from in those two? In the And I, actually, they're one in the same category. I like to use the word philosophy rather than religion or spirituality per se, because it, it covers a bigger, bigger swath, if you will. Where did you start uh, and where have you ended up to the, at this moment? It's not over, not by a long shot, because I don't know anything. <laughs> I haven't heard anything. Uh, about you or me, uh, as far as I know, we got a long way to go. But where, where, where do you hail from, and uh, that that has brought you to this point? Um, it's interesting. I was raised with no religion, and hmm. uh, my parents both had been raised in very religious homes and had rejected it. And they were very like intellectual, social justice kind of people, and they raised us to kind of this equation in our family was like, if you were smart, then you were not pursuing any kind of religion. Like that was for, that was for people who like were superstitious and needed answers that were not forthcoming. But I was like born a little seeker. I just, from the time I was little, I would lie in bed and think there's got to be some answers here. Like there's got to be some people who are looking for answers to like, who am I? Where do I go when I die? Where did I come from? How do I live? How do we solve that problem you were talking about earlier where Mm -hmm. we just have to learn how to get along? Like, hello, is anybody out there with some (laughs) answers? Because I couldn't ask my parents and we didn't go to church. So I, at about 17, I started reading. The first spiritual book I read was Thomas Merton's the seven story mountain. I don't know how I came to that, uh, but it just, it was my first inroad. And then when I got to college, it was the early 1970s and there was all this Eastern religion showing up. And I thought, I, I, that's for me, that's me. And I started going to meditation classes and yoga classes, which was all, you know, not what most people were doing. And I found a teacher who became my main teacher my whole life from the Sufi tradition, which is the mystical dimension of Islam, Pirvalayat Khan, his name was. And he was interested in what he called the unity of religious ideals. And it was kind of like going to college as opposed to having a guru. He taught us about every religion practices from every religion. And I was very interested, of course, in Buddhism and classical Buddhist meditation. 
But I also was really interested in the Christian mystics and the Muslim mystics and the Hindu mystics and just mysticism from around the world. Mm -hmm. And I happened to land with this fantastic teacher who who helped me learn that. And he was the one who had the idea to start Omega Institute. Oh, wow. My Metaphysical Primer, probably the first spiritual book I read uh, in the early 1970s. I was in my teens. I was probably a junior, a sophomore or junior in high school. Autobiography of a Yogi by Paramahansa Yogananda. Oh, that, that's my husband's favorite. And yeah. all these years later, he still keeps it by his bed and rereads it all the time. Well, I'll tell you what. Um, what's so fascinating to me. Hang on one second. What's interesting to me is that um, we uh, I have I have been searching for uh, many years, and what I find fascinating is that um, when I was working for the Christian radio station, having, of course, been influenced a lot by my Catholicism as I was born and raised into, um, and, of course, influenced by Autobiography of a Yogi, uh, and, uh, of course, in in the subsequent years, going to Self-Realization Fellowship and so forth, I remember uh, the question that was posed to me uh, about my salvation. And we were just chatting, and it was a good, calm, peaceful conversation. It was very nice. And I said, you know, um, they said uh, they said to me that, uh, you know, once you find Jesus, your search is over. And I knew at that moment and then said to them, I said, no, once I found Jesus— my search has just begun because a lot of what I had been told about what I had read specifically from the Bible didn't make sense to me. Now, that may, may make me a mental case of, of a sort, <laughs> as you've described it, and I, I don't have a problem with that. Oh, that's not what I meant. No, no, I know, I know. I, I understand what you meant by it, and I think that it's, there's nothing wrong with being a mental case in that respect, as you've defined it. I, I, I it's, it's sometimes can be a good thing. We were given these brains for a reason, to logically think. But at the same time, we've ignored that inner life, that spiritual life. And so a lot of the questions that they asked, that, that I would ask, the answers just didn't make any sense to me. There was no logic to them. That's where I was at, right? Mm-hmm. And so I just I can't, I've been searching ever since, and uh, I think one of the phrases that has sustained me over the years: "It is better to begin in doubt and end in certainty, than to begin in certainty and end in doubt." Mm. And I find that so many people are absolutely one hundred percent certain about whatever the subject is that you know you might bring up, and it's like really, and what happens if? Somebody has an experience that is outside of your certainty. What are you going to do then? And most people, what they do, uh, Elizabeth, is they will not only deny that that experience ever happened, they will then discount that individual's experience and try to destroy it. But that is part of what has made that individual who had that experience who they are. And I would never do that. You know, I've heard some very interesting and unusual things. I've heard of people who remember their alien abduction, for example. Well, who am I to question that? They're the ones who said that they had it. And now it's impacted them to such a degree, they're never going to be the same again. It's like, you know, once you've heard this program, you can't unhear it, you know, so now you have to deal with it. Um, what about that aspect of, of our raising our consciousness and our own awareness of things. Have you been uh, struck by some things that you've learned over the years in your study, your research, your meditation, and your spiritual life that um, you kind of wish sometimes, I wish I didn't know that because I'm a, now I'm responsible. <laughs> I'm now responsible um, because I know that. And I can't see the difference is there's a difference between ignorance and stupidity. Ignorance is I don't know. 
Stupidity is, I know, and I do the stupid thing anyway. I love that question. That's a very good question. I would say what comes to me, I'm sure there's more than this one, but what came to me is, I know that the only way through this division, divisiveness between humans, the only way through is for each one of us to reach a hand and a heart towards someone we deeply disagree with or don't understand, that doing the opposite of what you just said, stopping being so sure and going toward that other person and saying, I have an idea that you're wrong. Let's talk about maybe a Trump voter and a Biden voter. Mm -hmm. Let's pretend I'm a Biden voter and say, and I don't understand a Trump voter. In fact, it, it fills me with fear and, and just anger and a lack of understanding. I know, and sometimes I would like to unknow, that it's my responsibility to find that person and to come into the field that, that the poet Rumi says, out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and rightdoing, there is a field, I'll meet you there. And it is my job to meet the other in the field and not to judge the other and not to hate the other. It's my job. And it really, in my mind and in my life, has become my job. I, I have to do that. And when I hear of people on both sides rejecting other people out of kind just because of their beliefs, I don't care if you're left, right, or whatever. Mm -hmm. I, it breaks my heart because I know it's not true. And I know it's our job to reach toward the other. Sometimes I'd like not to know that. I'm kind of with you there. Uh, I myself uh, went through a phase um, and it was a fourfold phase. It used to be three, but then one of my guests uh, presented the fourth phase to me. And I've, I've really worked very hard at embracing it uh, because of what you just said. Because of what you just said. The first phase was, thank you, teacher, for teaching me how not to behave. <laughs> the second phase was, um, I forgive you. But more importantly, I forgive me for allowing myself to be, get drawn into this, this minutia, this quagmire. The third phase was, what is it that makes you, uh, what is it that you're so afraid of that it makes you behave and speak and, and do these things that you do? Okay. And there's no judgment. I'm not asking you to change. I just need to understand so I can move on with my life. I can understand. I can let it go and I can move on. The fourth phase, which I thought was, this was dealing with bullies. Well, there you go. This is where this is my perception on the 15th of June, 2015. That was my perception of him. A bully had nothing to do with politics. It all had to do with personality and character. So the fourth phase now is, and this is hard for a lot of people to come to. After the person has said all that they're going to say and they've done all that they're going to do, there's only one response to this person. I love you. That's it. I love you. And mean it. Because that person has every right to be here just like the rest of us. Just like you with Cassandra Speaks and telling the stories from a woman's point of view or perspective. As anybody else who's ever been here. Um, so that's, that's what I've been through. And, I love that. That's yeah. a very beautiful way of, of uh, bringing all the strings of what we've said together. Yeah. So. As we talk about uh, this work, now, Cassandra Speaks, again, folks, is uh, a book that uh, we encourage you uh, to pick a copy up, pick up a copy of, <laughs> trying to get my grammar correct here, uh, but it, it, it's a book that uh, when women are the storytellers, the human story changes, and Elizabeth Lesser is my guest, elizabethlesser.org is the website. This book has been out since the middle of uh, September of uh, 2020. Uh, we are in the 2020s, the decade of perfect vision. We hope that you'll spend time. Uh, uh, and I'm curious, uh, Elizabeth, is, 
going within, a good place to go to find the story of self and that that finding the story of self, the whole story, we have a dark side as well as a light side. We have to embrace that because that's what makes us who we are. So going within can be scary, but it also can be extremely beneficial. Talk to yeah. us about that. We do have a dark side, but we don't have to be led by the dark side. And the weird thing is that if we ignore the dark side, we're led by it. It's only by confronting it and owning it and not being ashamed of it that we can uh, stop listening to its bad advice. So going within helps us um, tame the dark side and elevate the light side. I have needed help going within. I don't think it's a journey that you can only make sitting on your meditation pillow by yourself. Because as I said earlier, there are lots of parts about of the self and there's lots of ways to go within. There's meditation, which brings peace and calm. There's psychotherapy, which helps us filter through all the different voices that you hear inside yourself. There's cleaning your vehicle, this beautiful body that we were given to go through life. And then there's tapping into other realms, other, other soulful worlds. Mm -hmm. So um, yes, going within is good, but I recommend some help, whether it's a meditation teacher or book or a therapist or some kind of physical regime that regimen that really helps you get healthy, um, taking care of the whole self allows you to find your true voice. Mm. For women in this age, um, can you talk to us about your perceptions? And, and again, uh, I don't have... Well, actually, I was going to say I don't have a dog in this fight. I do. I'm a human being on this planet. Plus, uh, I was raised by two loving parents, mother and father, uh, and grew up with four sisters and a brother. Two older sisters, two younger sisters, and a younger brother. So the dynamic of a matriarchal society does not bother me in the least. Matter <laughs> of fact, uh, I... Um, I look forward to that if if that's the direction that we are going to go for a period of time. But again, as I said earlier in the program, and I think you would agree, this is not about women taking over and taking control. No, I'm not into a matriarchy. No. I'm not into any of the archies. <laughs> <laughs> archies be done. Archies be done. I, I am into a human archy or a being archy. Where, where the whole idea of domination or supremacy is just so old-fashioned. And we can look back and say, that was a really poor way to behave for 6,000 years. Mm. Now we're going to uh, see, see the beauty in our diversity and our similarities. It's, it's, it's uh, Gloria Steinem, the great feminist, says it's not about... Uh, ranking. It's about linking. Mm. So we don't have to rank who's better. We can still be different, but we're linked. So in order for linkage, as opposed to ranking, I think it's a wonderful time for women to become comfortable in our own skin and not confuse power with how it's always been done but find our own way of expressing power from that tend and befriend instinct within us. And not all, you know, a lot of women are more in that direction and a lot of men are more in this. So it's really more the feminine and the masculine. But yeah. I do think because of nature and nurture, women are somewhat more attuned now yeah. to finding a new way of doing power. And I explain it a lot more in the book. And the book is Cassandra Speaks. That's the title of the book. Elizabeth Lesser's my guest. ElizabethLesser.org is the website. 
and I would have to say that you might feel that the title of this movement is actually rather appropriate. Me too. Me and you together. It's not saying me or us or, you know, women unite and fight. No, it's me too. I want to belong too. I want to be a part of the process of building our civilization. And to get back to the title of your your program here, women's stories of what it means to be human and uh, what we love and what matters to mm-hmm. us, that too, that, that all kinds of stories and are important and uh, all kinds of values are important. So yeah, the T-O-O, I agree with you. Yeah. And uh, I remember when Tim Allen, uh, I, I really loved his humor back in the 90s and what have you, uh, where he would, you know, men are pigs oh, 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 and, uh, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And I remember he used to get a lot of grief because he was so pro-man, they interpreted it as anti-woman. And I remember in an interview, he said, I'm not anti-woman. It's just that guys need to be with guys sometimes, just like gals need to be with gals. You know, men, men need to. And I had a men's group in 1993 uh, where it was just three of us. I was at that time the only married man of the three. The other two guys had, were divorced. Uh, one was a bar owner. The other was a, pro, a, a retired professor. And uh, we used to go hiking and we used to use Iron John by Robert Bly as our as our primer. One uh, of my favorite books. Yeah. And um, so. um we that was one of those things that my wife at that time, you know, she didn't have a problem with me going out with these guys because one of the things that I have learned, and this is uh, regarding relationships, Elizabeth, is that when you step out of your given partnership with whoever it is and have experiences outside of that relationship with your partner and then you come back. You bring so much more back into the relationship that you you kind of build upon. But a lot of people, they've turned the relationship of couples, uh, whether same sex or opposites, into a competition. Our television programs, this is the old myth that, that you know, uh, in, in a lot of these programs, which uh, some of them I find rather humorous. They're usually comedies where the man is trying to get one up on the woman. Not in a cruel way, but still, it's it's very subtle, so that you know he can feel like you know he can feel like the man, and it's like, wait a minute, what the hell? This is what you're supposed to be. A, that's what I learned from my parents. It's a team effort. You know, we all have our stuff we bring into the relationship, but it's still a team effort. And I'm I'm learning that even more and more with my second wife, uh, and we've been together 22 years, almost 23 years actually, and. You know, we had this conversation just the other day about how my perception is you're not an adversary. Uh, you're not a competitor. You are a my teammate. And yes, you have desires and dreams and so forth that you want. And I, I the same. And sometimes yeah. they're the same and sometimes they're different. Yes. Thank God for second marriages. <laughs> I call my first one my starter marriage. Yeah. Okay. All right. We learned a lot. I have a 115. I'm so sorry to say. No I'm worries. Leave you. No worries. Yeah. I'm gonna. I'm gonna ask you. Well, first of all, thank you so much for giving us so much time, and and I really do appreciate it. Uh, I do have three final questions I want to ask sure. you. They're very brief, yeah. but I want to remind our listeners that we're here Sundays at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m. Monday mornings at 1 a.m. Streaming live at those times at richarddugan.com. The podcasts are on SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, Stitcher, Player FM, Blueberry, and many other locations you folks are reposting our interviews to. We're also on YouTube, so you can watch this interview. If you'd like to go to her website, it is elizabethlesser.org. L-E-S-S-E-R is the last name, elizabethlesser.org. The book is entitled Cassandra Speaks. And if you'd like to support the work we're doing, we have PayPal and Patreon accounts for your security as well as ours. And please participate in the decade of the 20s. 2020s, the decade of perfect vision. I won't describe that any further. I will move into the questions for Elizabeth. And the first of three is, who is Elizabeth Lesser? Ah, you know, I have to say she's nobody. 
kind of the way uh, once I was at a retreat with Eckhart Tolle, the spiritual teacher, and some guy said, I don't know who I am anymore. And Eckhart said, congratulations. So I kind of feel I'm everything and nothing. I'm, uh, I'm a soul exploring the universe. What is it that you hope to or want to achieve through the work that you're doing now? Uh, to make the world a more loving place. And finally, what is your life's purpose? Hmm. You know, I'd have to say I, I don't really relate to that. I follow... I follow love around as best I can. Hmm. Elizabeth Lesser, thank you again for joining us here on the program and introducing us to Cassandra Speaks. And uh, we encourage all women and men to start to compile, to journal, whatever it takes to get your specific story out because it is important to the whole. And I thank you for sharing that idea with us, that concept, that philosophy, Elizabeth Lesser. Thank you for having me so much. You bet. I'm Richard Dugan. This has been Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. We are giving you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true. And until our next broadcast, podcast, videocast, love to lol.